The Pinball Network is online. Launching Silverball Chronicles. One, two, three. The Human Torch was denied a bank loan. Hello everyone, I'm David Dennis and this is Silverball Chronicles with me this month. Like every month is my co-hostess with the mostess, who can't stop being awesome, Ron Hallett. Hello. Your notes actually say who can't stop being awesome. I like that you wrote that down. If I don't put it down, I forget to say it. That's the thing. But then how awesome am I if you could actually forget to say it? Well, that's the thing, is that is that I, it, you, you know. Anywho, what's up, fella? Uh, not much. I see you've been doing a lot of stuff with the Rochester Pinball Collective, the RPC. Yeah, the old RPC. And just biding my time waiting to record the next exciting episode of Silverball Chronicles. That is so much fun. You're setting up the streaming rig there, which you so wonderfully donated to the Rochester Pinball Collective. Uh, The same rig and cameras that I asked to buy. And you said I couldn't. I'm sorry. Well, you're close, right? You're you're like... You're just a little farther up in Canada. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we'd have to do all that shipping and all that stuff. But I did end up getting a lot of stuff sorted out anyway. I bought some used cameras on the old Facebook Marketplace, and I'm streaming on Twitch. So you can give us a follow on twitch.tv slash silverballchronicles. Usually uh, I will stream around the time that we record, and then sometime around the time the episode is released, just to engage in the audience, chat about the episode, all of that stuff. I usually do Saturday mornings. The reason for that is that uh, I'm uh, usually in bed early because getting up early, staying up late with kids is literally my definition of hell. So Saturday mornings when most people are asleep because they've been partying all Friday night. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I get a lot of Australians. Oh, all right. Which is pretty wonderful, all those fellas out that way. The other thing is we've had probably one of the most exciting announcements, I think, in pinball in the last little while and that is the mandalorian by stern pinball not to sound like a shill but man oh man hook line and sinker love mandalorian i thought you were going to say it's all the money we made on merchandise we have sold three shirts in the month of may three shirts my friend i'm excited i'm excited i just saw that money coming in it's like damn we're in, we're in we're the money now. I can pay for at least one entry of a tournament. There you go. There you go. And shout out to TurboGrafx7 for picking up one of those shirts over at twitch.tv slash TurboGrafx7. One of our TBN streamers. And um, I would say one of the best Gottlieb System 80 streamers out there. We're not doing LCD screens. We're, we're, doing, we're doing cheesy 80s themes. And it's well worth it if you want something different. And he streams Friday nights, generally. Eastern time. Yeah. Swing on over to facebook.com slash silverballchronicles. That's where we read all of your posts. And of course, you'll see what we're doing. We post some photos from time to time. And I'm sure, Ron, once the uh, world continues to open up here, we will be engaged a lot more in the community. I'd like to actually get to a show which would be super. Yes, for those listening, we've never met. The, the two of us have, have, have never met. No, it is a blessing. 
Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A blessing. Okay, I don't know how to take that. <laughs> and he's not that far away, really. I mean, as far as shows go. In grand, in the grand scheme of things, for me to sort of zip down, like we're probably like six hours away, which is which is like no time. So what show? What show would it be? Oh, it would have to be Pintastic. Pintastic. All right. Yeah, but I don't think I'll be able to get out of the country by Pintastic. Oh, I'm sorry. Canadian borders are still closed. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, so, but... I, I guess we could figure something out, but I do certainly have to make my way over to level zero your arcade because um, you have a lot of games I've never played. Yeah. And um, you can show me a thing or two and maybe I can be a top 100 player. Why? I'm not. <laughs> I've never been top 100. I'm like top, I'm like top 1,000. That's the magic number for me. There you go. My magic number is top 10,000. So. There you go. Also, this week in pinball... If you swing on over to thisweekinpinball.com, that's where you grab all of your pinball news. That's where everybody in the hobby loves to congregate on Mondays. That's where we get all of our information. They help us out a little bit every month on the podcast, but they also have a promoter's database. So on the top of the website, if you click on uh, the pinball promoter's database, you can leave some feedback to the website. And we have a comment from John M. John M. says, I really appreciate Dave and Ron's ability to piece together the history, manufacturers, designers, artists, the drama, the layoffs, and create the behind-the-scenes narrative on what happened in the past and how they relate to the modern industry. It lets us know that the industry is in a great place today. Sales, cash on hand, investors, home buyers, but one slip-up or new technology to pull people away, i.e. video games, and it can all come crashing down again. Super interesting topics in history, all told with plenty of passion and humor. Just go listen. Oh, he misspelled humor. Uh, no, he spelled it right. You sure? Isn't there supposed to be a U in there? No, there's... Uh, oh, you? You? Yeah, there's a U. Yeah, but like, a, like, a, like, like at the end. No, no, he spelled it correctly. Not the Canadian way. Huh. Corrections and comments, my favorite part of the podcast, because we usually don't get a whole lot of corrections, because quite frankly, we're just that good. Um, I, I guess another thing is that, of course, we're piecing this together from multiple sources. We're trying to build a narrative ourselves. Naturally, um, these types of podcasts do indeed have errors and omissions and factual errors. But quite frankly, I think that adds to the charm and the speculation of the episode. Isn't that right? Sure. Okay, so Vincent S. has a comment here, Ron. He says, guys, just sending a quick thanks for the excellent content. I'm old, approaching 50, and just got back into the hobby after owning one machine for a couple of years in the late 1990s. Raven. Oh, my. Pinheads laugh at it, but my friends at the time sure played the heck out of it and had a blast with it. Your pot hits the sweet spot for me, and thanks to you, I now have a pinside wish list of about 50 machines. Oh my goodness. Oh, I hope you are a multimillionaire, mostly 1980 through 2000 range, in space for only two more machines. Probably a blessing. Final comment. You have covered lots of excellent Godleap content, but hope one of these episodes will do a System 80 special. Take care, thanks again, and keep it up. Oh, there's a there's a minefield in there with the System 80 era, and that minefield is JT. So we got to figure out how to handle that, Ron, and I'm not sure how to do it, but eventually we will get on to the topic of Gottlieb in the 1980s. Uh, Jason S. has a really cool little Easter egg that we didn't know about George Gomez's Corvette. Yeah, I didn't know about this. I, I guess... 
if you look at the back glass of the translate, there's an Easter egg. If you collect all the cards and essentially beat the game, the future C6, which I guess is, is that the model like Corvette six? Yeah, it's like the it's like the it's like the model of the C6 appears in the driver's visor in the back glass. Amazing game you should love. Take care. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Jason. Another thing that was really cool, and Ryan Kuiper, uh, you know, TurboGrafx Seven, who we mentioned earlier, also mentioned that the Corvette engine in Corvette was the model of Corvette engine that was supposed to come out, but was never actually released. So that little model is the model of the unreleased Corvette engine, which I thought was incredibly cool. Hmm. Tons of fun. That is all of our feedback and corrections from this month. So let's jump into today's content. Let's bring it back to pinball. This episode ties in a little bit to episode 12, which is pinball is dying. Williams in the early eighties. Now, pinball, of course, Ron, at this time was in a huge decline when we were going uh, through that episode, wasn't it? It was. We left it in a really bad spot. Is it going to survive? It, it, well, I know everybody's been hanging for a couple of weeks and, and, and probably like sweating bullets trying to figure out if they are indeed living in a fantasy world where pinball is not actually existing, but indeed it did survive. And of course it survived because Barry Ausler saved pinball. Barry Ausler, of course, was the major character in uh, Pinball is Dying, Williams in the early 80s, who was really the only surviving full-time designer at Williams during this time and really spent a lot of that time trying to design something different and new, which would inspire Pinball to once again rise like a phoenix. Phoenix was his first machine, by the way. Ah. That is true. It's also a very overused uh, quote. (laughs) Rise like the Phoenix. So do you think, Ron, Barry Ausler saved pinball? Uh, It was probably on its way up, but his his timing was excellent. And and the game was a huge seller. So sure. So it was said in this time in 1984, pinball was on the ropes and... The next game in the line had to sell big time or Williams would shut down. Now, Barry said that they were given an ultimatum to sell machines by the leadership team at Williams. Barry says nothing was selling more than 2000 games. If you were lucky, that sounds pretty rough. And I think nowadays the majority of pinball manufacturers would kill to sell 2000 games. They would. Uh, Some of the content that we got from this episode is from an interview with Joe Kamenkow on the Super Awesome Pinball Show, as well as Head to Head Pinball Podcast. I've included those in our show notes. I'll tell you, Joe, Joe is a sales guy. He's very relationship based. He's very charming. I'm sure I would love to have a steak with Joe. He provides a lot of really cool quotes and content, but but I, I think he lays it on a little bit thick about why this machine uh, that we're coming up to was so important. Well, Joe said, Williams needed a game that sold at least 3,500 machines to get things up and running. We told Mike, that'd be Mike's role, if he had to bet the future of his company on one game, Larry and I begged him to do Space Shuttle. And I assume by Larry, that's Larry DeMar. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. So that, of course, brings us into my birth pin. 
the pin which was created in the month in which I was born. That is December of 1984, the space-themed space shuttle, which was a Williams System 9. It sells 7,000 units. Of course, the concept by Joe Kamenkow, art by Mark Sprenger, sound Eugene Jarvis and Bill Prod, and the software by the returning Larry DeMar. And I believe the story is they unveiled that at a show, industry show, and if they couldn't sell, if they couldn't get a certain number of pre-orders, then it was it. They were going to shut it down. Wow. That's, that's a lot of pressure. That's how the story goes. There's uh, we'll get in, we'll get into how the story goes, but as of right now, you know, the, the anticipation was that there is, there's pressure on the team at Williams. They, they need to sell machines right? We can't be selling like 800 machines anymore. We have a line of people that have been building machines. We were just selling 7,000 machines not too long ago. Now we're selling 700 like this. We can't keep this up. And the narrative is that there is all of this pressure from the, the leadership team. This is where this, these two narratives come out. One of them is that this machine saves pinball and you know, it, it changes the game and it, it's like the invention of the DMD all of a sudden has completely changed everything. Or you had mentioned in previous episodes, now there's flippers and everything else is obsolete. There's kind of that narrative. And then there's the other narrative, which we'll get to in a moment. Do you agree with that, that this is a, a, you know, ground shaking game? The narrative I would more aspire to would be the one that this, this game kept the lights on in anticipation mm-hmm. of things like high speed Pinbot, those type of games that would really okay. bring pinball back. That's my opinion. Base Shuttle, Williams Flyer says, the fastest way to make your earnings really take off. <laughs> Love these flyers. They're so good. They're so good. Do you know it has heat shield protection? The game has heat shield protection? Is that like clear coat? Yeah. I assume, I assume that's the kickback. I assume that's the kickback. Oh. <laughs> I love the names they would have for these things. No, I think the heat shield is the is the thing in the middle that pops up. Oh, yeah, up. you're right. I forgot it had that. This machine is very unique in a couple of ways. One of them is that it is fairly basic in its layout. There's not a whole lot of crazy going on. But then all of a sudden, there is the top right where there are these sort of vacuum-formed plastic ramps and a space shuttle toy. It gets nuts kind of over there. And that's something we hadn't really seen before is, you know, we had bi-level games that had, you know, quote-unquote ramps to the, uh, the, you know, the upper play field or the the top part of the play field. Well, here we've got ramps, you know, all of a sudden. Well, they, they have had ramps, but not... I mean, I I don't think they ever had a huge toy sitting in the center of the game like this. It was very, very cool. And of course, this is a space shuttle theme like the space shuttle Discovery. And although it is a quote unquote license, you didn't actually need to license it because it is considered public domain. But they did reach out and get permission from NASA to use it. And the idea uh, was to take the game make a very simple multi-ball. You can get into multi-ball without a whole lot of shenanigans. It's got a ramp and they're going to bring back speech. That was really the core pieces. Yep. They brought back multiple. Yeah. You have a toy, you have speech again, you have two and three ball multi-ball. Crazy talk. Mm-hmm. I've played a lot of space shuttle. I like it. I do not love it, but there is a series of people that I know that this is like, 
this is like one of the games that's like, oh, this is sticking in my collection forever. It's super fun unless you're in a tournament. Yes. I played it mostly in a tournament. Yeah, that's not a good place to play because you're just going to shoot the three bank, which is in a very weird position, almost almost vertical to the player. There's a three bank and a spinner next to it, and you just shoot the three bank to increase the value of the spinner, hit the spinner over and over, and never shoot anything else. And the lanes at the top increase the bonus multiplier. But if you play it for fun, there's a lot of fun, and there's killer sound package on the game. Absolutely wonderful. Now this this layout is pretty 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 smart, if you ask me. It, you plunge up to the top, it goes all the way around into the orbit, into some left lanes, into three pop bumpers. It has six stand-ups. It's got stand-ups on the left and on the right, and then it has these two capture holes behind them. So it's it's somewhat symmetrical. And then you get to those targets and the ramps and the symmetry gets all thrown off. It's actually pretty cool. The biggest issue with this game is always flipper power and the ramp in the middle of the play field, like the main ramp where you start your multiball is always cracked. And the space shuttle toy itself is usually not in good shape either. Right. It's always like, you know, brown from cigarettes. You hit the center ramp and you'll see the whole thing like pop up in the air. It has a couple of like geometrical kind of issues with the design of the ramps and stuff, but yet it, it is very, it's very fun. And the spinner just goes for ever. You hit that spinner and it just, it goes and goes and goes and goes. I love the multiplier. You can go up to what, 8X or whatever ridiculous thing it goes to. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. Now the drop targets you had mentioned are sort of, you know, are angled in an odd position as sort of the left side of the entrance into the spinner. And that's because it's made to be sweepable, but I found it really hard to actually sweep that three bank. You can, you can. I'm going to ask the question again. Did space shuttle save pinball? So if Barry Ausler maybe didn't save pinball, did space shuttle save pinball the team around him? Eh, According to Steve Ritchie, no. And everybody knows that Steve Ritchie is the dominant narrative almost all of the time. Um, And that's because he's done a lot of written interviews. He's done a lot of podcasts and things like that. So there's a lot of sort of Steve Ritchie bias in pinball. And and not that that's a bad thing, but it's usually his narrative that ends up coming out. But I've also teased out a few other bits and pieces here. And Steve Ritchie, you know, he would say that Space Shuttle came out. But it wasn't Space Shuttle being a savior. It was more or less the beneficiary of an already rising pinball manufacturing trend. Python Angelo, he would say something similar. But of course, it's important to point out that Python Angelo had a falling out with Barry Ausler and was not particularly positive about him later in his career. He had falling outs with many people. (laughs) So let's go back to the numbers. So in in episode 12, we talked about Pharaoh, the bi-level game, selling 2,500 units. We've got Barracora, which is a very cool game, sells 2,350 units. Uh, Cosmic Gunfight, which is an awesome game, but they didn't make very many, 1,008 units. Warlock sells 412 units. Defender sells 3,069 Time Fantasy sells 608. We are in a bad, bad way here. Firepower 2 comes out. This is not uh, Steve Ritchie taking Firepower and making it again. This is a gentleman named Mark Ritchie, who probably knows Steve Ritchie because they're brothers. 
This was a multi-ball game, and it had a pretty cool ramp. So it sells 3,400 units in early 1984. So we see a jump there, right? Laser Q. Which is Alien Poker. A better version of Alien Poker. It's Alien Poker without speech, though. Oh, didn't know that. Look at the play fields. They're almost the same. Well, we'll get into that when we get into a Mark Ritchie episode. Laser Q, 2,800 units. Laser Q had a really strange extra ball ball saver feature. So it had a bit of a gimmick. Then we get into Space Shuttle, sells 7,000 units. So we can see that, woo, there is a, there is something special about this game. There was one before that. There's Starlight, which had, oh. which had like a hundred. It had a really, really low, low production number. Ooh, then we get into Sorcerer. This is uh, Mark Ritchie's second game. It sells 3,700 units and it has voice and multiball. So we can see that, yes, the trend did start moving upward, but there is an anomaly. Space Shuttle has like double everybody else. So there's something special there. Did bringing back the voice and the multiball save pinball, maybe? I don't know if it saved it, but it was nice having it back after it had been there so prominently and just four years earlier. So they remove it because it's super expensive to do that. The stuff, speech right? was really expensive, especially the way Williams did it. They did because they had the individual words on the chips and like one word equal, I don't know, 50 bucks or whatever. Some like insane dollar amount for every new word you wanted to put in the game. Yeah. And it's not because you got to pay somebody to, to say the word. No, it's, it's actually literally the chip, the, the technology. Yes. Yeah. They, I think they use those Yamaha chips probably back then. And, and, you know, speech in board technology was a, was, was pretty novel. It was very fancy and expensive. When you look at those numbers, do you think maybe Mark Ritchie saved pinball? Oh, Firepower 2. I mean, it was in a sequel off a very well-known game. I'm sure that didn't hurt. Sorcerer sells 3,700. I played a lot of Sorcerer. It was okay. It's got eyes in the back panel. Let's tie it back then. What does Barry Ausler say? Does he think he saved pinball? Does he have Does he have the, the Joe Cam and Cow quote that we needed to save pinball on his wall? And then, and then below it, he has a picture of the game that he designed. Did, does he think he saved pinball? Well, from the man himself, Barry says, that's what everyone was saying. But whatever game they put out and that game did well, then that game would have been called the game that saved pinball. Space Shelter just happened to be the game they picked. I can't say what the other games would have done, but I'm glad it worked. At least we got another 10 or 12 years out of Williams. Barry Ausler, ever so humble. He does not have that written on his wall in fancy lettering that he saved pinball. But I will say, again, there's the two narratives, right? The one is that Barry Ausler and the team and everybody saved pinball, and without that, they'd be dead. And then there's the other narrative, which is, nah, it didn't matter what came out. You know, whatever machine happened to be at that time, it would have done well. Uh, you know, it's somewhere in the middle. Right. Barry's being overly humble. You know, Joe and those guys are being maybe a little too salesy. I think we're in the middle here somewhere, which is, you know, 7,000 units among a group of 3,000 unit sellers is, is, you know, more than just, well, if it wasn't Space Shuttle, if they had released Sorcerer earlier or some other game, it would have done well. No, I, there's something special about Space Shuttle. And let's just say in the current pinball market, as much as we think it's a resurgence of pinball. Nothing is sell selling 7,000 units. No yeah. You know, I would like to think that Mandalorian would sell 7,000 units, but, I, you no. know, but it's not, which is terrifying that Space Shuttle, a game with literally a spinner and a toy uh, in the middle of the play field, uh, is selling 7,000 units. 
Whole different market. Whole different world nowadays. There's there's a lot of talk about who actually designed the play field on Space Shuttle. Barry Alser would say that Joe and Larry, which I assume Joe Kamikow and Larry DeMar, drew the play field and had the idea for the machine. But when they built the Whitewood, they couldn't get it to work quite right. So like Barracora, Barry had to redraw the whole game. He made a whole different playfield layout. It was very different from the original layout, very similar to Barracora. So usually, you know, Barry's like the ultimate master of taking a something that's got a bit of a vision, but no real direction, and then really finishing it and making it work well the way it does. And the geometry, I think, does work really, really well in this game. Eugene Jarvis was, of course, burned out from all the work in the Vid Kids venture. And when you're working sort of in this time, I think you've really start to understand the idea of a small team creating video games in this time there's not hundreds of people there's like four and he decided to go to california to do his master's get his master's degree eugene jarvis of course from california doing his master's did the sound effects which i think are very very cool yeah how'd he do that they didn't have email then yeah so this is this is totally weird okay imagine this that you could just do this work remotely, right? We're all working from home for the most part or have been, and we just email the files back and forth. That didn't happen at this time. Eugene, who was doing the sound, would would literally do the sound bits. He'd put it in an envelope and he would he would mail it all the way to Chicago. Imagine that. Now, I bet you he was pretty incentivized to do a lot of that work, don't you think? I think so. At least according to your notes that I'm looking at. Yeah. So uh, Eugene, Eugene Jarvis would say uh, that he helped with the first basic design and it was $50 a sound. So he would get paid $50 a sound by Williams. So he would, he would program that for an hour and bam, 50 bucks. So he would just bang that out as best he could. When you're doing a voice, they're bringing voice back. Who do they need to do voice? You just have Steve Ritchie do it. Steve Ritchie's not working there, right? You just can't knock on the, on his office and bring him in. Isn't he off doing his King video designs or something? Uh, well, he had Devastator, but I think that had already gone belly up at that point. He was very close to coming back anyway. The thing about that game that always drives me nuts to this day is either he was, he was too close to the mic or they didn't have a pop guard. Whenever he says a P sound, it really, it's too loud. You know, exit, pilot one, like, oh, every time I hear that. Oh, yeah. It's just... my, my OCD goes off. It's like, oh, where was the pop guard? But the thing is, though, you, you know, now the speakers are so old in those cabinets that you're just you just sort of chalk it up to the speakers being crap. Nah, it always sounded like that. <laughs> yeah. They say that this was the first production solid state game with a toy, but it wasn't necessarily the first pinball game with a toy, was it? No. And even that, I'm sure people would say that's not true and have like 30 other examples I could name an example of like um, oh, the one Bally game with the Balligator. You know, we have the Gator comes out. The Nippet? Yeah. The, yeah. The, original, the original design, it wasn't like just a metal thing. It was an actual molded like alligator head on some of the earlier ones. So is that a toy? That kind of looks like a toy, doesn't it? I'm sure you had European games that had different toys. I could think of at least some of uh, Zachariah games that had stuff like that on it. There are the, one thing that I always say is the Italians are always light years ahead of everybody else when it comes to innovation. You you damn right we are. You damn right. <laughs> uh, Joe Kamenkow again. He would talk about how this toy actually came about. So Mark Springer was having issues drawing the fire in the back of the shuttle for the backlash. 
So Joe says, I went to Toys R Us and picked up a foam toy to use for perspective. After I popped it on the playfield by the ramp at the back, it eventually became the toy. How cool is that? Innovation in pinball always ends up just being a mistake. I think one of my favorite bits about the art, always the little bits. We've mentioned this in the high-speed playfield where on uh, if you look on the top of those cars, you can see 8, 11, 81. And then you can see those same numbers on top of the, uh, what are they, like little transport things driving around the space shuttle and it's a eight w eleven s eighty one what what is that that's a date august eleventh nineteen eighty one so is this uh mark springer's uh password to all of his banking information no that would be joshua no this was the birth date of his son ah very cool the initials and birth date of his son how neat is that to have your initials on one of the coolest games out there? You know, I always thought was neat was the name of the space shuttle. Ooh, what's the name of the space shuttle? I don't have that in my notes here. Really? You don't have that? No. Defender. <gasps> so cool. Call back to, to the video game, well, and pinball machine that probably hardly anyone's played. Probably mostly the video game that was a callback <laughs> to. Yeah, I bet. So, uh, you know, the theme of this show is uh, is uh, is is pumping up Turbo Graphics Seven streaming and and Ryan Kuiper and Dave uh, Brennan Brennan Dave Brennan. So let's continue on with a quote from Ryan Kuiper on Space Shuttle. He said, Space Shuttle had an amazing group of people working on the game, besides Barry Asler. There was Eugene Jarvis doing sounds and Larry DeMar doing the code. One of the things I enjoy most about the game is the use of the insert matrix near the flippers. Seeing the numbers count down in the inserts is a very cool use of the inserts. Yeah, so why don't you describe what, what he's talking about there? There's basically a huge grid right above your flippers. And it's literally like a grid, a ton of inserts, which on most space shuttles, it's completely worn to the wood and looks horrible. Always a mess. Always. But it, it counts up the bonus with the grid. Plus it has those um, multiplier inserts. Go to two, two X, three X, four X, five X, six X, seven. It's like insane. And it takes forever to count the bonus down, which is awesome. Yeah, it does. Now the, the inserts will actually like spell things. To, they, too, spell, right? they spell space shuttle. Oh, that's not very fancy. Oh, <laughs> Hey, they advertised it in their flyer showing how it could do letters. Yeah, so that was a big that was a big deal. Uh, what most people do is they take out the regular light bulbs and they put in those awesome pink LEDs. No, that's not awesome at all. <laughs> it's horrible. LEDs. It's absolutely horrible. Uh, the interesting thing it's it's got the little the little guy that pops up in between the flippers to save your ball, which is a throwback to like that's a mech that was used on a ton of EMs. Early solid state games. It's like an it's like a ball save without putting another ball into yeah. the shooter lane, right? It just sort yeah. of sits there. And as of this recording, I think the last game to use that would be Family Guy. Oh yeah, that's right. Very cool. I said it because you know, thirty years from now, when you listen back to these shows, I'm sure there'll be others. You'll be like, hey, Keith Elwood has one of those. That would be cool. Yeah, get on that very target first, man. Get me a very target. None of this. None of this other crap. Anywho, so if we move on sort of next in, uh, you know, Barry Ausler's adventure here, he gets into Comet. Comet is a world under glass 
where it is a uh, theme park, basically. This was covered in our Python Angelo episode. So if you want to jump back and review that in greater detail, please listen to our batshit crazy, the Python Angelo story in the archives. You swore. <laughs> Barry would say about Comet, working with Python was an experience. Python is a great guy. He's a little strange, but he's really good and he's really talented. He knows what he's doing. With Comet, we just let him go run wild with it. This was one of the first games that men and women played, young and old. Most of the other designers were building more tough guy macho stuff. I was trying to make something more universal that more people could enjoy. Yeah, see, that is something that's very interesting about Barry Ausler, is he's looking to build accessibility across ages and genders, where most of the designers double down on the existing market. It's very smart with Barry Ausler. He should be very proud to have that type of vision. And I would highly recommend our Python episode if you want to know more about some of the Barry games we're not going to mention because it's in the other episode. Yeah, we didn't want to double count. Yeah, we don't want to. We don't want to double dip. Yeah, like I mean, I gotta. You know, we don't want to. And we're not slackers. So then next they did Grand Lizard. Of course, that's with Python Angelo again. This was considered a fill the line game to keep things rolling around. Basically, took Solar Fire. Uh, which is in our one of our previous episodes where they talk about the design and they made it onto a regular single level game rather than the bi-level game and just added a molded lizard based tongue thing yeah yeah like a lizard that was left out in the sun too long so then they got into pinbot which uh, again one of my favorite python angelo inspired uh games and one of my favorite ausler games as well now one thing that we did forget to mention was Joe Jose in the pin, in the Python episode, and Barry had some great insight into working with Joe. Barry says, I had a lot of help with the mechanical devices, the visor, target bank, and the spiral skill shot from Joe Jose. He was the best mechanical engineer I ever worked with. And you are a huge fan of Joe. Joe was a designer at Stern Electronics and did a lot of their later games, like Quicksilver, Dragon Fist, um, Catacomb. Actually, by the end, he was kind of one of their only designers. Yeah, exactly. And then he moved into engineering. Yeah, I always thought that was weird. He went to Williams and it's he just never designed any games again. He was just mechanical engineer. This brings us to a game which we hadn't covered before, and that was Fire, <laughs> which uh, is um, Fire-themed. Yeah. It's uh, June from 1987. It's a Williams System 11A. So we've got a new board set it sells 7697 units mark springer again on art music and sound by chris graner brian schmidt and rich carlson carstens carstens rich carstens software by dan lee so there's a couple of things here i want to talk before we we deep dive here one of them is williams system 11a there was nine and then there was 11 right which, which was like high speed pinbot they, they were 11. Then you go to 11A, then there's 11B, then there's 11C. So what, are the, what does A add to System 11? Oh, man, you're, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I know A, A still has the special solenoids, so you can like lock on slings and pop bumpers and burn up coils and stuff. They haven't got rid of that yet. It, it, it literally just get more complicated and add more and more stuff. They just add, like, more little boards to do things. Well, they'd have, like, a soundboard, but they they eventually, they'd have stuff on a soundboard, but they'd also have it on the combined CPU 
driver board, and then they slowly moved more of the sound stuff to its own soundboard over time. Little things would change here and there. So we've also got a couple of names on here. One of them is the legend himself, Chris Graner, Brian Schmidt, and uh, uh, you know Dan Lee, who is a new name here in software. Fire. One of the games that I first played was Fire. It needed a flipper rebuild like mm. you would not <laughs> imagine. It is very, very steep ramps. It was horrific. It was so bad, it has tainted oh. my understanding of this game. So I've never played it in a quality format. One of my best friends, this is his favorite game. We would go a place, and if they had a fire there, he would just sit there and play fire for and ignore all other games. It was crazy. So if you go over to the uh, twitch.tv slash fliptronics, they have in their archive um, some fire gameplay. Is it fliptronics or fliptronic? Oh, it's fliptronic. I'm saving you here getting yelled at by uh, our fellow Pinball Network people. It's in. It's Jordan. Heck of a job, you know, fixing and tweaking and things. And it looks like... So much fun uh, when it's not in a massive amount of disrepair. So this is a game that now we're moving into games with stories, right? This is post high speed system 11 where you're chased in a car, police car chase, running the red light. Now we're getting into something now that is a story and it's objective based rather than, you know, shoot around the play field and try to get your multiplier up. Oh, you got to put out fires. Got to put out fires. That's why it's called fire. Yeah. A big part of this is the cow. We've talked about this a bunch of times. Yep. And this cow that's in fire is not related to the cows that would come up later. Right. The the cows that came later were because Brian Eddy has a thing for cows. So he would start putting them in all his games and then everyone else just followed his lead. So there ended up being a cow in like every Williams game. Yeah. So he's sort of like a furry, right? Like with cows. Oh, oh man. <laughs> so the cow in fire is meant to be the cow that tipped over. Miss, was it Mrs. O'Leary? Mrs. O'Leary's cow that tipped over the lantern and started the fire, the great Chicago fire. So one of the largest pieces of Chicago history is the great Chicago fire from October 8th to 10th in 1871. The fire began in a neighborhood in the southwest corner of the city. This was after a long period of hot, dry, windy conditions. And of course, in that time, wooden construction was prevalent in a lot of major cities. This massive fire killed approximately 300 people and destroyed 3.3 square miles, or 9 square kilometers, of the city and left more than 100,000 residents homeless. That is really devastating. So let's make a game about it. Yeah! Uh -huh. So this is, of course, you mentioned Mrs. O'Leary's cow. So... I did a little bit of, uh, of nerding here. So Mrs. O'Leary's cow is Catherine O'Leary, and she's O'Leary. Uh, O'Leary. Uh, Catherine uh, O'Leary. I'm Irish too, so you got to say the Irish names right. Uh, March from uh, 1827 was when she was born, and she died in uh, July of 1895. She was an Irish immigrant living in Chicago, Illinois, who had become famous when it was alleged that her cow started the Great Chicago Fire in 1871. 
here we go. We'll get into this. So after the great Chicago fire, the now defunct Chicago Republican newspaper reporter, Michael Ahern, published a claim that the fire was started when a cow kicked over a lantern when it was being milked. The owner was not named, but it was later where Catherine O'Leary was outed because it started in her family barn. Now, this was an anti-Irish narrative because at the time, the Irish were often scapegoated for how bad things happened in the United States. So if you're blaming other types of immigrants nowadays for the state of the world, just remember the Irish were once scapegoated as well. Mrs. O'Leary, of course, would testify that she was in bed when the fire began and not milking her cow, and she does not know how it started. And in 1893, the newspaper, which originally published the uh, story, had admitted that the entire story was made up. Well, how about that? Great press there. Good job. You know, how does Mrs. O'Leary's cow tie into the game? Well, in fact, there is a cow that moos, and the moo is also heard when you're putting your coin in yeah. the coin slot, which is kind of fun. The game also has a bell. <gasps> top of I the love game. games with bells. Uh, and it has one of the coolest little toys ever. I don't know to call it a toy, but it's got these it's got this thing that turns so it looks like mm -hmm. fire i don't think i've ever seen it used in any other game either it's like the only time i remember seeing that thing yeah it's like a it's like a cylinder and it turns and it, it's like it's flickering underneath the play field and it literally looks like fire as the the fire intensifies sort of the flickering intensifies very very cool now this game also has no pops nope What's going on with that? You get, you got to have three pop bumpers. If you don't have three pop bumpers somewhere in the top left or top right, the game is not pinball. Isn't that correct? No, no. Williams, they let them do what they wanted. <gasps> I know. Crazy concept. Although um, somehow we're able to get two pop bumpers and a kicker sling thing with stranger things. Brian Eddy gets to not put three pop bumpers. Yeah, I, I don't think that's an edict anymore at Stern. That was a edict from Gary, but... At least in multiple interviews with the designers, they have said that, no, that's not a thing anymore. Basically, if they keep it under the bill of materials, they can do what they want. Yeah. So Barry would say that uh, you got to fight fires and the fires spread all over the play field. And he didn't have a way to use the pops and he didn't have enough room for the pop bumpers to have the theme work. Adam Ryan, who is a famous Williams uh, dot matrix artist from the 1990s, he has some uh, input on pop bumpers he says pop bumpers have been around since 1948 and they just did something you know flippers pop bumpers and slingshots every game has to have that there you go it's not pinball <laughs> so the ramps on this game now this is some it kind of this is interesting right so this is kind of before you know return to the flipper ramps were a thing this is where we're still trying to figure out how ramps work and what we should be doing with them but the ramps just kind of go up and then they kind of hit it's got one in the middle and then it's got two kind of returns symmetrically on the left and the right yep and they hit a target when you get up to the top and they are steep they are super steep and the flippers to be aligned properly they have to face down quite a bit yeah you got to get a real real good snap or or you're not making it and and if it comes down that middle ramp it's going right down the middle now, this is where we get into the concept of an LE or a limited edition. The Champagne edition from October of 1987 sells 273 units. This game was such a great game, such a great seller, so unique 
They made 273 extra units. It had an oak cabinet. Fancy. And gold fittings. Yeah. Gold color, like brass. And it had rotating cylinders in the back glass. Yes. If, if I were ever to own a fire, it would only be a champagne edition. Wow. Because the cylinders in the back glass are tremendous. It literally looks like your, your system 11A board is on fire in the head that's what it looks like it looks that good that does that's that's fairly par for the course for a lot of these that, games that though, could right? happen sometime yeah but those poor gi connectors bursting into flames it's, it's hard to describe the effect but it's like if you want if you're looking at a grill or a barbecue the little like waviness over it when you can't see through it like that, yeah. that kind of that's what it looks like it's a very cool optical illusion yeah, and they have two of those cylinders in the head and they rotate and it looks awesome so why did they build this special limited edition? Because some of the fancier restaurant trendy places who w- wanted a brass machine, oak type look. <laughs> yeah, those, you know, you, you want to go into Vaselli's, uh, you know, veal, uh, you know, this fancy restaurant is very trendy and you needed a fancy looking machine. So we got uh, building Easter eggs. Yeah, the, the buildings. It has all these molded plastic buildings that always break all over the place. There's a lot of stuff that breaks in this game. So on the left and the right, they've got like, it's like large, big plastic things that are covering like a, you know, a ball lock or a, you know, drop target or a stand up target. And they all have unique names. Uh, there's Ausler's Arcade, which is kind of interesting because I, I don't think in the 1800s they had arcades. Yeah, Kenny's Soup Kitchen, the Back Alley Saloon, Springer's First National Bank, the AMS Warehouse, and the WMS Harness Shop. Yeah, so there's some some cool stuff in there. And I will say the Champagne Edition, other interesting notes, the, the Lockdown Bar has like these, it's, it's brass, it's like brass color, but it's got like bolts in it. It's kind of weird. And the oak cabinets, some of them came with decals, some came without decals. So there's some fires, it's just like an oak cabinet. There's others that just have the the basic fire graphic slapped on it on a decal. Very, very cool. I know way too much about fire. So Ron's looking for a fire, folks. So if you've got a nice looking fire. Champagne edition only. That's right. This brings us into the next release in December of 1987 by Barry Ausler. That's Space Station. This is outer space theme. This is a System 11B. Sells 3,804. We've got art by Tim Elliott. Now, there's a new name. He did like Road Kings and uh, Bally Game Show. And he did a lot of Alvin G. Uh, hit their art in the 1990s. Ooh, Road Kings. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, uh, music and sound. Brian Schmidt. Of course, uh, he would do a lot of Daddy East work. And um, some of the, the uh, Stern stuff. Now we've also got Ed Boon on software and um, everybody, you know, every time I see Ed Boon's name, he's the guy or one of the guys that created Mortal Kombat. Yeah, he's the Mortal Kombat guy. People forget about the pinball part. That's so awesome. I believe he's the voice of Rudy, too, if I recall. Oh, so cool. So Space Station. Now, it seems to be a thing where Barry Ouser will release a space-themed game in December. He wanted to do a sequel to Space Shuttle because Space Shuttle was awesome and it saved pinball and they want to do space and at this time they were building the international space station which was a big deal and was quite popular among the nerd community isn't that right ron uh sure (laughs) oh you're such a nerd 
I, 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 have you played Space Shuttle? Of course you've played Space Shuttle. Of course I've played Space Shuttle. Have I played a game? Come on. So Space Station is one of those games that I played a lot of when I first got into pinball because I had a friend of mine on Prince Edward Island, shout out to Sean, who had a space station. Uh, Should have bought it when he sold it, but I didn't. When you first get into pinball, you probably don't even remember this time, but you're playing games and you don't understand games. You just sort of cut, you're, you're flipping, you're playing and you, you know, you're like, oh, you shoot the ramp and you got to get the multipliers. Like you understand the basics, but you don't understand maybe why the ball moves around or interacts with things. And I found that space station was really, really hard. And I couldn't keep the ball alive quite like I could on other machines. And that came down to one thing that I didn't realize until months and months later was that this game does not have an Italian bottom. It does not. Ron, what is an Italian bottom? Uh, basically two in lanes or well, in lanes, flippers, out lanes. This doesn't have in lanes. Yeah. The, the, the balls kind of go, uh, there's the out lanes that go down into the drain. There's nothing you can do to really save it besides nudging. There's the inside lanes that come right down into the flippers really nice and easy. You can, you can cradle the ball or you can post pass it over, or you can keep the momentum to the other flipper. And then you have the slings above it. This game is very much a throwback to all of those other you know, old school 60s style pinballs where the the flippers are right on the slingshots. So there's no way that you can just sort of easily hold up the flipper and catch the ball. Um, Dennis Creasel has a fantastic article about this. I will include that in the show notes if I remember, because sometimes I forget to put things in the show notes. That area is super, super fast and dangerous. I have to say, this is probably the only pinball machine that has ever used the word rendezvous in it. <laughs> oh, there you go. There's a piece of trivia. Because it's the full title. It's it's Space Station Pinball Rendezvous. And the first time I ever saw it, I'm there like, is it a French game? What's with that? What's that word? I didn't realize that. I did realize that was rendezvous or that's how it was spelled. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. You haven't, you haven't Americanized your spelling there. No. The other interesting thing, I always see this, this game is almost a twin with another game, which will be like, what? I see this is F-14 Tomcat's twin. What? Do you know why? Why? F-14 Tomcat on the speaker panel, it says Williams pinball number one in the world. Oh, yes. Space Station, it says, Williams Pinball, number one in all worlds. It's basically a callback to F-14. So cool. I always like that. It's a good one. That's a good one. And to tie it back to Steve Ritchie again, of course, he did the male voice in the game. I, I think this is a great game. I'm very sad that I didn't buy this when I possibly had a chance because it's unique. It's very different. And of course, it is a rendezvous Rendezvous. with Pinball Destiny. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it has a very unique, it has multiple GI strings, different colors. Yeah, it does. It's so cool. Which I don't know if that had been done yet. So years before you had a color changing lights and stuff. So they had to have entire GI strings that were just one color and then they would change the yeah you go into condition green so you'd build up your 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 uh multi-ball when you went into multi-ball it would go to condition green and it would have the light bulbs with the little little colored condoms on them and it would all turn green 
Would have been better if it was purple, but... Well, the funny thing is, the first, one of the first times I played it, I thought it was like some kind of mod someone put in with LEDs or something. And I said, hey, this is actually a good mod. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, that's actually, that's how it comes. I think it'd be so much cooler if it was conditioned red, though, instead of green. Don't forget the rotating uh, who's about Bobby that goes yeah. around. It doesn't really, well, actually, it does, it diverts it in different directions. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So the so the, let's look. I'll I'll, I'll paint you a, a word picture here. You can always tell the games that David really likes because he gets way more into explaining them. It's so exciting! It's so exciting. So you plunge the ball, and you don't just sort of plunge the ball into the orbit, which is kind of the thing nowadays, um, other than an Elwin game. But it has a ramp, a ball guide, or habit trail. It's a habit trail. A very long habit trail. So cool. It goes up and across the play field, but it doesn't get in your way. Like it doesn't, doesn't bother your vision very much. And then it has like an upper play field that has uh roll through lanes and then a little hole and it, and it just goes bloop right into the pop bumpers. So at the top, you can, um, you know, increase uh, your multipliers. It also has some drop targets. Everybody loves drop targets. If you shoot the far left orbit, it'll go all the way around and into a vertical up kicker, which will then pop it back into the upper play field. It has uh, a ramp diverter space station. So this is both the coolest and saddest part of this entire game. So there's a drop target in front of a, in front of a uh, ramp and you shoot it up and in there it diverts the ball across the play field on a little habit trail and then into a capture hole. And then you can capture... The ball goes around the other side into the vertical up kicker, and then it diverts it again into another staging area for your condition green. And this little space station rotates to move the diverter on the ramp. But this sad, sad little toy is like the most just boring, unimaginative, ugly space station, isn't it? It spins. Yeah, but the the toy itself is like... It also has a ton of flashers because this is System 11, and that's required. And it also has bonus time. Bonus time is awesome. So when you drain your last ball, depending on how much bonus time you've built up, you get to play some more. And I think in tournaments, that's included. Because you can, I don't think you can turn it off. So you get so you could be behind somebody, but maybe you can catch them with your bonus time. Yeah, that's dirty. Oh, that's fun. Does that count in tournaments? I believe so. Most of the ones I've could because it's it's what are you supposed to do? Just not plunge because it'll just sit there. So now it originally had a second uh, drop target to protect the uh, vertical up kicker section in the back of uh, the space station. It was removed due to cost. There's a photo of that on IPDB if you want to check that out. This is an interesting sort of time in space flight history when this pin was being developed. So space was a really big thing at the time, right? The the space shuttle program, putting stuff into the space shuttle, the, the Canada arm, taking that stuff out and building the International Space Station. It was um, quite an amazing time when I was in, uh, you know, Starting in my elementary school years, this was a big, big, big deal. And right around the time that this game was in development, one of NASA's most fatal incidents happened. Uh, artist Tim Elliott, the real space shuttle Challenger blew up right in front of me, January 1986, when I was illustrating the shuttle for the game. I was the only one in the art room at the time and had the TV on. 
It was terrible and ironic at the same time. I was actually painting the small shuttle on the right of the backlash when it happened. Wow, that's intense. So this was a uh, ground-shaking event around uh, space flight at the time, and uh, you know Tim Elliott telling IPDB that story. Uh, you know that's a that's that's a big deal. So this is where we get into another string of games where Barry Oser works very closely with Python Angelo, Cyclone, Police Force, and Bad Cats. God, I hate Police Force. Oh, uh, Barry says Python. Oh, wait a minute. I think his name spelled wrong. Oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Barry says Python was wild to work with. We'd be working on a project together and he'd disappear for a week, two weeks at a time. He always had some big story when he got back. It was all Safari with National Geographic, whatever he'd come up with. He got it done. He worked better under pressure. That would drive management crazy. Oh, could you imagine how horrible? He's like the guy on the group project that just like disappears and then shows up at the last minute and does a bunch of work. God, that's annoying. Barry, of course, was a guy uh, who was always utilized to keep the line going. He was always the individual that finished up projects, keep kept people in line. And um, it was said that, of course, he could get a play field together in a month. And I would liken this to the Williams version of John Norris at Gottlieb, who was just brilliant engineer and workhorse. This brings us to an, a very odd uh, game. This is Harley Davidson, which is a motorbike license theme from February of 1991. This is a Williams WPC, but of course, this is under the Midway name. It's 2,187 units. Mark Springer again on art. Music and sound by Dan Forden, of course, doing Attack for Mars. And uh, let's say Dan Forden is, is, is also a legend like Chris Graner. And software by Jim Stompolis. I got that one right. He did mousing around. Yeah. The greatest music ever. Mm -hmm. This was the last Bally alphanumeric game. And it was originally designed to be a trial game similar to Gottlieb's street-level games, which we covered in Zombie Pinball, Gottlieb's System 3 in the archives. Ken Fidesna would say, Harley was an experiment to see if we could bring to market a more simple playing game with a lower cost. Yeah, these the System 11 games, they've got the speech, they've got some some crazy mechs that are now being made with ball diverters, and uh, you know they've got metal ramps or plastic ramps, and... The costs are continuing to escalate. Gottlieb is really the only person in that era who is, you know, very price sensitive. They're trying to keep their things uh, priced lower. Um, and, you know, Ken Fidesna and the team at Williams have seen, okay, well, we need to sort of fill the gap somewhere. We need to make things uh, a little bit easier. Now, the original title for this game was Poker Night, and it was a theme that was centered around, of course, playing poker and eating pizza. Reportedly, one target was required to answer a phone. Huh. That is very similar to a game that Barry would do. Yeah, answer the phone. Hmm. <laughs> Barry was a big poker night person with a lot of the other programmers and designers at Bally Williams. And in fact, I have been told that Dwight Sullivan is among that group of players, and they still, from time to time, play poker poker live to ride ride to live harley Whoa. davidson it says something like that like right before multi-ball starts it, it says that harley davidson is a lifestyle brand mm -hmm. uh, people have zero 
bad to say about Barry Ausler. That's why everybody loves to play poker with him. They love to collaborate on his games. When you look at the names of all of the people that he works with, you know, they're all high caliber. They all, you know, put out an amazing product. And a lot of that comes from what Steve Ritchie calls the dad person who kind of corrals everybody together and brings in their information, uh, you know, feedback, design elements, and they really push a lot of those pieces. Sophia Ryan was on uh, the super awesome pinball show. I will include that in the show notes. This is the first time I had ever heard of this individual. I have this thing. Do you know what recency bias is, Ron? Uh, re- recency or regency? Recency. Recency. Okay. Recency bias is that if you hear something, you know, recently, um, odds are you will be biased towards, um, you know, understanding or using that content. And, um, because I consume a lot of podcasts when I'm, when I'm out driving or you know, making, you know, supper or something like that, um, I, you know, I tend to bring up some of those things. Now, of course, it's a lot harder to get podcasts from the 1980s or the 90s because they didn't exist. So when somebody like Sophia Ryan is on the Super Awesome Pinball Show, which is a very, you know, new podcast, you know, I tend to absorb that information a little bit more. Maybe I'm including this because I heard it recently and it is a new interview. But I think the quality of it still stands up. And that is that nobody has anything bad to say about Barry Ausler. Yeah, and Zofia Ryan is a mechanical engineer. She was a mechanical engineer at Williams, and she's currently a mechanical engineer at uh, American Pinball. Barry's a great man. He came up with a concept, an idea. Both of us would just sit down and talk about this, and I would sketch it out or lay it out, and he would make corrections, and it was, and it was always a success. Barry was just a really great friend, and he is so easygoing and understanding. He would never feel offended with anyone disagreeing with him, and I learned a lot from him. Yeah, his collaborative approach on his pinball machines from everybody from his, uh, you know, electrical engineers or mechanical engineers or designers or programmers, he always brought the best out of individuals, something he should always be proud of. This brings us into Hurricane. Uh, that was in our Python Angelo episode, another uh, theme park game in his uh, theme park trilogy. The next one, which is a big, big game, Doctor Who. Ah, great. What are we going to talk about? Yeah. Oh, I'm not going to include that in this episode. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason for that is that we're building out another episode, and I want to uh, include it in that one. Speaking again of uh, recency bias, there is some uh, fantastic Sophia Ryan uh, commentary to fill out the Doctor Who section because she is the creator of that amazing meat slicing mech let's get into one that we can really talk about here though and that is bram stoker's dracula this is a vampire licensed movie theme april of 1993 it sells 6801 units it is a fliptronics 2 wpc williams board set mark springer on art music and sound by paul hirch who did Creature, Black Rose, and Scared Stiff. There's no R in his name. <sighs> and Williams WPC is fine. Fliptronics 2 is just the Fliptronics the flipper board set. Oh, software by Bill Futzenruder. So it's Paul Heich. 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 Paul. Music and sound by Paul Heich. It's a very German name. Now, Bram Stokers, this is one heck of of a movie. 
It's something else. You've seen this movie. No. You haven't seen oh my god, you don't ever see any of these movies that we talk about. I, I might have seen What do you watch? What media do you consume? I, I the parts of the movie I actually saw were in the uh the, the pinball trailer for this game. <laughs> they showed scenes from the movie. That's about all I remember. Do you do you watch movies? I watch movies, I just didn't watch this one. You don't watch Marvel movies, you don't watch the Star Wars stuff. I watched this I watched the Star Wars trilogy, it's great. Trilogies. No, no, just the one. The, the only one that exists in my world. What about Rogue One? Uh, I watched the scene that everyone told me to watch where Vader kicks ass at the end. <sighs> This 1992 American Gothic horror film directed and produced by Francis Ford Coppola, who's best known as being the uncle to Nicolas Cage, is based on the 1897 novel Dracula by Bram Stoker. So and Francis Ford Coppola is most famous for his... his so he's not famous for being Ty Shire's brother. He's not famous for directing the Godfather trilogy. Nope. No. Okay. Yep. Nicholas Cage's uncle. Now, of course, this movie stars Gary Oldman as Dracula. Uh, Winona Ryder, who is not a good actress. Not in this one, no. Anthony Hopkins, an amazing legend. And, of course, Keanu Reeves, where he's in so deep over his head, you can't even see him. And I got that just from the trailers that they show for the pinball thing. It's something else. Take me away from all this death. Like, oh God, that's pretty bad. Whoa. (laughs) Did he actually do that? No. 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 So, of course, uh, funny enough, this film grossed $215 million against a production budget of $40 million. It was nominated for four Academy Awards. Uh, none of them for acting by Winona Ryder or Keanu Reeves. And it was, uh, of course, a winner of three Academy Awards for Best Costume, absolutely, Best Sound Editing, 100%, and Best Makeup, because it was something else. Boy, the casting was bad. <laughs> Just to, to underline how bad that was, uh, there are these Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves plastics on the playfield. These prototype plastics on the slingshots uh, show Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder characters. And according to Barry Ausler, these plastics were removed prior to production because the actors, or probably only Winona Ryder, would not sign the release for their images. The funny thing is, when you look at the slings, you can see the holes where they're supposed to mount. They never change that. And if after the fact, if back in the day you bought a plastic set for Dracula from Williams, those plastics were included. They were yeah. with the set. So, oops. So I, I had them in mine when I owned mine because y- you had to. So Winona Ryder, if you're listening to the podcast today. Well, the funny thing is, if you play Stranger Things, Winona Ryder is right on the slingshot. And I always wondered if that was a callback. Like, we got to put her on the slingshot. Yeah. Like she was supposed to be in Dracula. She's in the flyer, though, of course. Yeah, well, you, know, you can't you can't edit that. You know, it's a game you can really sink your teeth into. Oh. <laughs> I know. I was, I, so I'm flipping through the stuff here on, on IPDB, and sometimes I don't go quick enough to get it away from Ron. It has one heck of a flyer because uh, the pin itself is inside of a coffin, you know, like Dracula. Yeah. It's like this. This has one of the coolest pinball events 
in all of pinball. Wow. And that's missed multiball. So I take it you like it. Oh, the first time I saw that, I just, it, it's it, that feeling the first time you see like magic. That is exactly how I felt when I saw Miss Multiball. So what's Missed Multiball? Missed Multiball is where the ball basically travels across the play field on a magnet and with light underneath it that nobody notices. It's actually a light bulb. The little green mist is actually like it's it's translucent. It's like an insert and there's a light underneath it, which I never even realized till I looked at the Mac. Like there's a light there. Didn't really notice that. Like it's a heck of a it's a heck of a thing. So the ball travels from left to right. Yeah. And it it kind of wiggles across like this green mist, mist yeah. uh, that's in the art. Because I guess in the movie he turns into green mist at some point. The other interesting thing is because because they did that, they had to cut the play field all the way across. So they had to add extra stabilizers to it. So the if you lift the play field up, it's heavier than average play field because it has iron supports going down the sides so the so the so the play field doesn't snap in half yeah that would not that would not go well so sophia ryan says the idea to carry the ball across the play field was a barry ausler idea and he laid out the pattern where he wanted the ball to be carried so we used the screw machine from some previous game and then we designed all the housings and how the ball with the magnet would be carried across the play field. So the, can you can you explain the mech? So I, I don't think people understand how complicated that is underneath that play field. It's big. There's a track that goes from one end of the play field to the other. It's like a giant. It's like a giant drill bit. That yes, it literally is a giant drill bit, and it spins, and then the magnet goes across, and it's a whole mech in itself. It's got the magnet. It's got a light on it. Goes all the way across. Then, you, then there's the optos above the play field. To tell the ball that's there's an yeah. opto beam that goes all the way across that has to be aligned properly because it will detect when the ball goes off of the beam, so it knows like, okay, you knocked the ball off. So, so nowadays, you know, if you start a multi ball, it's like you shoot the ball onto the magnet core and it just sits there. And then you get another ball, and if you hit the ball off of the magnet core, you know, your multi-ball starts. This thing is literally moving across the play field from left to right. Yeah. When it it loads it into a pocket on the right, so the actual shooter lane, it pops up. Like the part, there's a little flap, and it pops up so you can shoot it into the pocket, then it lowers down. Is it a mechanical nightmare to work on? It's extremely complicated. The whole... That whole section, because they were still using the older trough, and and the code is very buggy. Mm. It's Bill Futzenruder, I believe, did the code, and he may or may not have left to go to Capcom after this. I think it's just has I think it's just version one point but it has other it has lots of bugs where it will forget where the balls are. You'll be a multi ball, and a ball will just be sitting. You're in, like, in a single ball multi ball because the ball's still sitting in a shooter lane, and it doesn't launch it. That's like a tournament rule on Dracula. If you see it in there, you have to hit the button so it launches it. You can't leave it in there. Yeah, this game has an was it was the the topic of a very epic sort of world championship match, isn't that right? So yes, it was in the finals of uh, the IFPA World Championships. It was uh, the final game of the series, Daniele Acciari versus Johannes Ostermeyer, and Daniele got way like billions ahead, and Johannes did nothing on ball one and two. And then on ball three, he did the thing, which we didn't talk about that. The, the whole the whole gimmick of this game, other than the Miss Multiball, was had multi-multi-ball. Had three different multi-balls, and you try to get them all running at the same time. So you stack them. You stack them. And if you can do that, 
You can catch up to anyone, which Johannes did, and he won the world championship on Dracula. This machine is not the uh, first game to have a moving magnet with ball. That was Sega Enterprises 1973. Uh, Just thought I'd point that out so we don't get any angry emails. I'm sure people will be like, you forgot about Sega Enterprises. (laughs) Yeah, take that, Bruce Nightingale. Well, there'll probably be someone who said, you forgot about this 1956 game that does it, because there probably is one. Yeah, take that. Slam tilt Zach. So, so there's, uh, there's a couple of things here that I want to talk about sort of beyond the coolness, uh, of the game itself. One of them is the Ron Jeremy coffin. Wow. I, there's a name I thought I would never hear on a pinball podcast, but yes. Barry Ouster, uh, originally wanted this sort of coffin physical ball lock where when the, the, the multi-ball would start, he would rise up from the casket. And to be truthful, the first time I ever saw this game was actually at the first pinball show I ever went to, Allentown, 2004. This was the game you could win. And when I saw it, when I saw the coffin, I thought like, oh, he must move. I just figured he he does something. So sort of before the era of when things kind of moved, like characters moved a la Monster Bash. The, the... It looks it it looks bad, and that's why I call it the Ron Jeremy thing. It just it just looks horrible. It doesn't look like him in the movie. Note, noted adult film star for those who don't know that is. Yeah, it's it's just it's just bad. But there is a mod uh, mod makers out there that three D print like a really cool uh, cover. So just go ahead and buy that because this looks just horrible. Looks very bad. The other thing is, and this is where this critique will start with Barry Ausler, that it has the 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 Barry Ausler ramp where it's like this long sort of lumbering left or right ramp um, with a diverter on it. And this is a ramp which will appear quite a few times across multiple games kind of from now on out. Isn't that right? Uh, yeah, I guess Dirty Harry's similar with the diverter on the ramp. I like it. Yeah, instead of on the left, it's on the right. A couple of other little bits here on this game is there are a lot of molded plastics on the left and right. Very nice. Very nice machine. It's very, very hard because it also has lightning flippers. Yep. It is extremely difficult. I I had mine for the longest time and my father was quite upset when I sold it. Now this game is uh, what they would originally call um, a C or D level Bally Williams. Isn't that right? Uh, It wasn't like Attack from Mars level. If that's what you mean. Yeah. So most of the time, like these were bargain basement Bally Williams. But, like, uh, if, not anymore. As long as, well, actually most Williams games of this era are not bargain basement. No more, right? Like originally you could get one of these pretty cheap. No more. This is, this, these now are very pricey machines. And that's because they, it has a level of charm and magic, quote unquote, pinball magic that uh, we don't have anymore. And the other issue with the game is with a lot of the games that have the red silk screening on the cabinet, it just fades badly. So if you can find a non-faded one, that's a premium. It also had, and I know it's a popular subject at the time of recording this, playfield issues. Um, Dracula actually had playfield issue in that. During the production run, there was two companies that did playfields for this game. He had Lanksmith and Sun. Um, the Lanksmith Smith play fields suffered from planking issues, which of course is what I had. 
Yeah, that's where you see like the grain of the. Uh, you can see the grain. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the other question. Like, oh, which playfield? I'll lift it up. I want to see the marking on it. Is it a Lanksmith or a Sun? Oh, it's a Sun. Good. Uh, in the market today, I don't think you have the ability to actually do that. It's like, do you want to buy it or not? Because somebody else will. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, uh, on episode 35 of Topcast, Barry Ouser would say that the original license for this machine was Alien 3. And the game was all done and all laid out. But then the producers decided to rewrite the whole movie. Interesting. So they scrapped it. Wonder what that play field looked like. Now here's a game, the next one here for Barry Ausler, where uh, we uh, during our Python uh, Angelo episode, we got a lot of messages and emails afterwards. And the commentary was, how did you cover Python? But you didn't talk about Popeye Saves the Earth. Well, the reason I left that out is because I wanted to include it in the Barry Ausler episode. Because Barry Ausler does not have much controversy. <laughs> Right, he's very straightforward, very easygoing. Everybody loves him. So I needed some controversy for this episode and some drama. And how do you do that? You bring in Python Angelo. So Popeye Saves the Earth is a space cartoon licensed movie theme. It is from February of 1994. It is a William WPC DCS system. It sells 4,217 units. Art by Python Angelo and John Yossi, with some uh, input with Pat McMahon. Music and sound by Paul Hitch. And software by Mike Boone. Interesting that Python would always say he, he wouldn't do licensed themes for art, yet he did Bugs Bunny and he did Popeye. So I guess if it was a cartoon, like a famous cartoon, he would do it. Python Angelo uh, would say in a lot of his uh, interviews that the reason he chose to do Bugs Bunny and the reason he chose to do Popeye were that they were such an integral part of his youth and it was exciting to work with such a magnificent property. Yeah, I think he just wanted to draw them, like the honor of actually getting to draw that. Exactly, exactly. It's sort of like uh, Zombie Yeti doing uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You knew that that was something special for him. So Barry Ausser says about the game... It was strange. The game took a lot of ribbing over the years. It's so big in French and Germany. Popeye had been around for 70 years. Management loved Python. He, he could do no wrong with them. If he said he wanted to do something, they let him do it. So Sophia Ryan says on Python, she said, I was really amazed with his artwork. It was incredible to every detail, always adding and changing. But it never looked right to him. But it looked good to us. She she uh, spoke very uh, fondly of Python. And I think a lot of people do in general. But he was nutty. Uh, that's for sure. So Python's idea was that, that he drew a, uh, cruise ship sort of like Noah's Ark and he wanted to save animals and, and he wanted it to be like, you know, oncology and greenhouse gases and, and, and nature and stuff like that. He wanted to save the animals from greenhouse gases. I mean, there's, he, he wrote a whole story. I think it's on, uh, IPDB. It's on IPDB. So it's epic. He's ahead of his time. It, and it was not like Pinbot, where he just sort of drew, uh, you know, the Pinbot and said, oh, he's a, he's a Pinbot. And uh, he's a pinball machine and you're one with the machine. Like, it is a whole, woo, it is intense. Now, they would go from planet to planet on this game, you know, save animals and stuff. Uh, in those notes that you spoke to a moment ago, that there's this old typewriter style written story uh, that's been scanned into there. There's an alternative planet 
which is uh, unisex, or it says hyphen gay. Then it says, Jeremy, explore this one. Like, what is, what is, like... We can't do justice to it here. You need to go there and read the whole story. He had a whole backstory to this game. It's really off the wall. Python uh, would leave Williams for Capcom, and uh, Mark Ritchie and Bill Futzenruder and Chris Graner would also go with him. Yeah, Capcom raided Williams. Right around the end of this project. Zofia Ryan would say that Python was a really good friend of mine, and it's really sad that he's no longer with us. I had a lot of fun with him. He was entertaining. He made me laugh. His procrastination was always saying, well, well, we'll do this later. We'll do it later. I mean, we're family. We would go after work and celebrate all of our different projects. We'll get into Python Angelo and Capcom in a future episode. But uh, this was the part of his career where he was very erratic and very strange. How was Popeye received, Ron? Uh, um, Is it one of the greatest Bally Williams, the greatest wide body as a Mr. Zach Many would lead you to believe? I, I think a lot of people used it for parts. Really? Why is that? Um, it was not popular here. Let's just put it that way. It's not a great game. No, and and Steve Ritchie really thinks it caused problems. Uh, Steve Ritchie on the uh, Loser Kid Pinball podcast, he says, Star Trek The Next Generation was the last five-digit game ever. That sold, you know, 10,000 plus anywhere in the world. It all died after Popeye came out. We had contracts with distributors when Popeye came out, and they were pissed at us. They had to buy so many of them. Our whole distributorship structure changed after that. I'm not going to dump it all on Popeye, but it had a lot to do with it. It's funny. He says, I, mean, I want to dump it all on Popeye, but you just did. What I, what I gather from this is distributors had certain uh, allocation numbers, right? You had to order X amount of units, uh, regardless of if you had somebody that could sell them or not. And that structure uh, really challenged them because you got a, a turd like Popeye and they're required to buy units and they can't sell them. So then they have to eat that cost for a very, very long time. And uh, that probably didn't help in this time when, when we sort of start that tumble down the hill. What do, what do you think Barry's thoughts were of the machine? Barry says, management wanted me to do another game with Python to try and capture the magic we have with the previous collaborations. I wasn't too happy with the theme or the drawings that it created. It was another scenario where the artwork was done first. I reluctantly agreed due to pressure from above. I think it's one of my two least favorite games that I designed. The other being Bad Cats. Ooh. Oh, meow, 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 meow. <laughs> bad Cats. So, uh, you know, Python gets to go do, I think, probably a really great uh, follow-up game. He's, he's You know, he's, he's, he's kind of had a difficult time uh, with that whole Popeye experience. Uh, maybe not all bought into the game itself. And he jumps into Dirty Harry which is a licensed police movie theme. That's from March of 1995. It is a Williams WPC DCS, sells 4,217 units, art by Kevin O'Connor and Pat McMahon, music and sound by Vince Pontarelli, who um, did uh, Congo and Judge Dredd and Monster Bash, and software by Craig Stilla. Silla. Saya. S-Y-L-L-A. Yeah. So if you can pronounce that, send us an email at silverballchroniclesgmail.com. Uh, Barry was a big Dirty Harry and Clint Eastwood fan, and he watched all of the movies multiple times in preparation to design this pin. Now, it was not designed on one specific Dirty Harry movie. It was based on the character of Dirty Harry, who was portrayed by Clint Eastwood in multiple movies. Although it does have Scorpio in it from the first one. 
they decided to go with a younger Clint Eastwood because by this time, starting to look like an old Warren baseball mitt. Well, he was 65 at the time this game was made, yeah. Clint, uh, at the time, was filming Bridges of Madison County, and the sound team actually went to the set to record all of the callouts for this game. Which I'm amazed they got him to do callouts. Isn't that, like, he was not a small actor, no. especially at this time. He's Academy Award winning, like, about as big a star as you can be, and he actually yeah. did callouts. We didn't even mention on Dracula, they got Gary Oldman, the star yeah. of that movie, to actually do all the custom callouts, which... That's amazing to me. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to get him to do you that. You wouldn't be now. able to get him to do that now. But, I mean, in, we didn't even talk about how awesome the call-outs are in there. You know, 30 million! You know. But uh, the call-outs in this are not quite as excited. No, not at all. Now, these are uh, probably amongst the laziest of call-outs I have ever heard. This is probably worse than Stranger Things. Uh, the thing is, what did you want him to say? He doesn't talk. Like, he doesn't get excited. I mean, what did he want him to sound like? Says a uh, super jackpot. He, he sounded like he sounded like Clint Eastwood. Yeah, he You know, sadly enough, they might be lazy, but they are dirty, hairy. Yep. You know, like it is on brand. Yep. I never had issues with the callouts. Now, Dirty Harry has a couple of things here. One of them is it has the Terminator Two uh, ACDC cannon thing, but done a little bit differently. Yeah, it's a Magnum. It's a Magnum, punk. And it also has the uh, Magnum shooter handle. It has the Magnum shooter handle, punk. Which, which when Williams did this, they didn't use no cheap plastic. It's like metal. It's like you could hurt someone with that thing. If you run into it, yeah. you're going you're gonna to hurt yourself. Yeah, there's a rage tilt help there, that's for sure. Yeah, and uh, I'm a fan. I own one. Yes, this has that uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula ramp on the right side this time, where it's kind of a lumbering One of the left. hardest ramps to hit. That thing is hard. It's got a very, very um, sharp turn. It's tough to get it up there. But it has, if you shoot that, it's got a diverter. And it has a really cool feature called ricochet. And then I think it's uh, ultra ricochet and then mega ricochet or something. It has an awesome third ripper, uh, third flipper ramp, which is almost impossible to miss. And it has, it got a little smarter. They have the, the stand-ups throughout the play field that are custom. They're meant to look like uh, targets, like target practice. Yeah, like, like, on a, like on a, those cop movies like, where yeah, they like would the shooting, like range. shooting the bad guys. But like in the center one, instead of a plastic over it, it's metal. So at least they got a little smart there because that definitely would have broke. Yeah. But, but the one thing they didn't get smart is they have one of those on the left side and his shoulder always gets ripped off uh, like mm -hmm. on every Dirty Harry. Mm -hmm. It is an Acme Warehouse uh, toy or, or yeah. mold, which is super cool with a vertical up kicker behind it onto the ramp. There's diverters just everywhere. Just diverters here, diverters there. It is it is something else. And it's got the the hole. Barry, Barry Alser likes his holes. That's ugh. He has on the Dirty Harry. I mean, who done it? It's, it's, he likes he likes the hole. <laughs> this suffered from some cost cutting. It originally had a couple of items, and and they're still in the software. That's the thing that throws me that they didn't bother to take them out. So I wonder if they even cut that short at some point. There was originally supposed to be a drop target in front of the warehouse, and that was okay. removed. It was going to be a single drop target. Kind of like what No Fear has. It would be controllable. You know, it could raise up and lower down by itself. 
It has a, a, a controllable gate. There's two gates on the top. One is controlled. The other one isn't. Originally, they were both supposed to be controlled. And they're still in the software. If you go into the software and the solenoid test, they're there. It'll say, like, right control gate, left control gate, drop target up, drop target down. Yeah, so it's like they just pulled it just to sort of save you save know, money. I mean, fifty bucks. Here but I'm there. wondering what the original rules like for the warehouse were going to be if the target was there, and especially the extra, the gate, the control, the gate up there. What what were they going to do with that that they changed? Control gates are just cool, but um, we'll never know. We'll never ever know ever. Uh, that being said, Dirty Harry, it is a direct hit. Uh, reading the flyer again, I see. Yes. Set your sights on a winner. Get it? Sights? Set your sights on a winner, punk. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. It also uses the, um, huh, what do they call The 545 blinking bulbs that you can't get anymore. It uses them in the head. Yes. For the bullet holes, which are weird. That My one issue with the game, it has these bullet holes in the uh, translate. They're actual holes in the translate so you can see through to the lighting in the back box. The problem is one of the bullet holes, they put it, 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 Williams had a standard location where they would put the sticker on the insert panel that said like high voltage behind here, be careful. And they put the bullet hole right where that was. So when you look through the hole, you just see that stupid label. <laughs> so on mine, I literally, I took the label off and moved it. Uh, so I don't see that. So you didn't, you didn't just take it off completely. You had to move it because you're such a like. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I couldn't just take it off. So I, I literally re-glued it into a different location. Wow. So this, of course, ha- has some amazing dot animation by uh, Scott uh, Slomany and uh, Adam Ryan, Brian Morris. This is, this is when we get into the era where the dots are awesome. Oh, yeah. And the original dots were going to be much gorier, but they were cut. And for the life of me, I can't find the damn website where it is. I've seen them before. It was like a multi-ball intro where it shows them like shooting people and stuff. Like, ooh, man, that's kind of... That's kind of violent and they, they <laughs> kind cut, of risque they, and they cut it. Yeah. After uh dirty Harry, we jump into who done it. We covered that under the Dwight episode. This brings us to a fairly controversial game. I said before that I wanted to bring Python Angelo into here to create some controversy. Well, he's no longer at Williams, but yet there's still some controversy around jackpot. That is the sci-fi robot gambling theme. It is from October of 1995. It is a Williams WPCS. Sells 2,428 units. Art by John Yossi and Doug Watson. Music by John Hay. And software by Larry DeMar and Louis Cozares. 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 Now, they needed a game quickly to fill the line. And, of course, Barry is your call-up for the fill-the-line games. So what they did is they took Pinbot and they updated it with a DMD and some new code and some uh, more reliable mechanics. And it took them three months to get this game out the door rather than the usual 12 to 18 months. Barry is credited for the design but admits that he didn't have really much to do with Jackpot. You've played a lot of Jackpot. This is a tournament darling, is it not? 100% tournament darling. All the tournament players love this game. You guys love that cliche of risk-reward. Oh, it is totally risk-reward. Yep. The distributors weren't very happy with it, though. Now, Jackbot, it's within everyone's reach. <laughs> it's a sure bet. Now, why was this, uh, you know, clearly kind of 
you know, gambling incentive, risk reward, kind of press your luck game, not that big. Well, the distributors were upset because they saw the same play field. It's like it's Pinbot. And they were like, never send me the same play field again. Ooh, it made them angry because I already had a Pinbot. I don't need a Pinbot with a DMD. And it was like, don't start, don't start this. Right. Like, don't don't just start taking the old play fields and change them around um, with a DMD. Right. I want new games, not old games, which is a shame because it was really cool what they did with the game. You take a, a, the idea from William's standpoint, you take a proven winner, a proven play field that sold well over 10,000 units and just update it with modern rules. And you have jackpot. Now, Python Angelo would have a serious issue with this game. And, and that's because Pinbot, the Pinbot franchise, is something that he dreamed up, drew, you know, birthed into the world. And now Williams is building that game again, the third one in the series without him. You know, that's a, a he took it pretty hard. And John Yalsey said that Python left the project in mid-design. So John and Doug Watson finished the game. So Python was gone from Williams the point that the game came out yeah he had very minimal involvement yeah and python said this about barry Alser. he said barry was in need of ideas it was a mix of pinbot and jokers barry you make the best designs with python go make your own your biggest success was pea soup shrimp pizza and apple strudel with vanilla ice cream you put that in a bowl and mix them together barry and lawler didn't have anything to mix and create until eugene and i was there okay is this from topcast yes it is yes that sounds like the again i re- highly recommend the Python Topcast, if you just want to hear him just go off, just go off on multiple people. And some of them are just weird. Like Steve Ritchie, he's a genius. He's great. Pat Lawler, I hate him. He's terrible. It's, it's like, what? It's just Harry <laughs> Williams is a genius. Oh, Harry Williams is the king. The ultimate What was the genius. book that he wanted everybody to read? Oh, uh, The Foundry? Something yeah, like he that. just tells everybody to read this book over yeah. and over and over again. And it, it, the reason I take this quote out is... At this time, Python is basically saying in a, in a roundabout way that Barry couldn't do anything on his own. He couldn't he, – he wasn't creative enough to mix things together. He needed somebody else to do it for him, which, which I completely disagree with if we take a look at uh, Doctor Who, uh, you know, Dirty Harry – you know, all of these games where Python was nowhere to be seen. Dracula, which we just – Dracula, mentioned. right, like – totally wrong um but you could see that that obviously python was very bothered by the fact that they were taking his created intellectual property which he didn't own by the way well the company always owns it that's just the way it goes you know i i i, I like jackpot it's okay it's okay um the thing is i haven't played enough of it to really understand it i i kind of prefer pinbot and because i can i can understand it <laughs> mm. i never could understand the whole uh button the cheat button. Yeah. Like when you're supposed to hit it, when you're not supposed to hit it. Like, do you keep pushing your luck and yeah. you know, collecting the bomb there's or a, the water or something? Yeah. I think there's a button on the, I think it's on the right side that actually flashes intermittently. You hit it to cheat or, or get things. I never could understand exactly when you're supposed to do it. Other than yeah. like when I watch people play it, they always are hitting that thing. So I'm guessing just hit it all the time. All the time. Now, Jack Danger uh, did a lot of videos when he had a jackpot, and, and I watched quite a bit of that. And man, he, he figured it out because he had some scores that just make my brain hurt. Well, his name is Jack. 
and it's jackpot. So it's kind of unfair advantage. It's his it's, it's game. Yeah. Thanks for that, Ron. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let's get into Barry's last Bally Williams. And that was Junkyard. And this is a uh, fantasy sanitary landfill theme. <laughs> That's just so made up. It's a fantasy a landfill game. Oh, come on. Sanitary landfill. Sanitary landfill. Yes, because when I think of junkyard, I, sanitary is the, the first thing. I think it's a sanity, actually, when I'm looking at it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It is. Uh, December of 1996. Uh, of course, Barry Ouser being the December guy when it comes to games. It is a 95 WPC Williams, sells 3,013 units. Art by Pat McMahon, Linda Deal, and Paul Barker. Sound by, oh my God, these guys. Kurt Goebel. Goebel. G-O-E-B-E-L. Come on, get a name. Software by Larry DeMar and Louis Cozares. Cozier. Coz. Says the guy whose name is two first names. That's right. And dots by Adam Ryan, of course. Probably some of the best dots I think he's ever done is on Junkyard. And uh, aside from maybe the later um, George Gomez games. You know what I really like about Junkyard? It uses a better version of the spinner that's on Johnny Mnemonic. So when your Johnny Mnemonic spinner breaks multiple times and you can't get it anymore, you can still get a junkyard spinner and it works in a Johnny Mnemonic. There, there you go. This is the best part of that game. Well, it's in the shooter lane too, which is weird, but yes. Yeah, it's like outlane spinners. How have we not done outlane spinners yet? Mm. Get, get, get on that. So it was decided that Dwight and Barry would work together again because Who Done It was such a great collaboration. But this time, instead of Dwight taking the lead, Barry would take the lead on the project. Barry thought, it wouldn't it be cool to have a bunch of iconic old parts from other pinball games and stick them together in a junkyard? So, for example, you, you know, you might have... Uh, uh, the, the electric chair from Adam's family. Yeah, you might something. have the electric chair from Adam's family laying in the background. Or you'd have the gun from Dirty Harry on the side. Or you would have a bunch of old coffins from Bram Stoker's Dracula. See, that would have been cool if they could have actually got that in the game. See, that would have been really, really cool. Now, after Barry and Dwight had started to think about that. Yeah, it's like it ain't going to fit. It's not going to fit. In there. Uh, and then they just changed it to sort of an uh, a, a actual kind of junkyard with fridges and cars and toilets. And it's an unusual game um, outside of the theme itself. When they thought about this, this junkyard theme, that's kind of not enough, right? They needed to expand it. You needed a goal or something, right? You just can't say it's a junkyard and you shoot the ball around. You got to have like a, got to have a story. So Adam Ryan says. The dot guy. The dot guy. He says someone had come up with a theme. Like you're trying to free some people from a junkyard, but that was it. So I walked into Dwight's office and said, there's really nothing, nothing here in the game to make me want to win it. It's just collecting junk. So he said, all right, Adam, I'm going on vacation for two weeks. When I get back, I want a theme and left. (laughs) Yeah. It's very Dwight, isn't it? You know, the dot guy, Adam Ryan is the person who more or less came up with the theme of the game. So when Dwight got back, Adam gave him a theme and that's essentially what's in the game right now. Adam was super shocked that Dwight liked the theme and he was very pleased with the way the game came out. So what is the, like the object of junkyard? I have no idea. I've only played it a few times. There's like, there's junk and there's a dog that chases you in a video mode. And it's just that good. (laughs) I haven't played. I haven't got to play it that much. I mean, most of the time I play it, I just hit the crane. Oh my God. Remember it's the meanest game in the whole darn town. 
Oh, that's so bad. And it's got like just the cutest dog. It's got a bulldog in there, and it doesn't look anywhere near as mean as the one in the game does. Right. It's just, it's just like this cute little puppy with this like, he's got a spike on his name. Oh, God bless him. It's not hard to play in the yard. I like when they take these these pictures for the flyers and they got it like with a fence around it. It's like, man, that would be cool if that actually looked like that. This also features Crazy Bob's Cosmic Salvage. Crazy Bob makes a, another appearance here mm-hmm. after the Johnny Mnemonic Crazy Bob's gimmick came along. And I, I always thought the guy in the back was the uh, same guy that was in Mousing Around. Oh, yeah. Kind of looks like him. The, the art guy in the back there. The, the guy that's trying to mm-hmm. catch the mice. Those darn mice. Of course, this was done by the voiceover artist by Mr. Boom Shakalaka, Tim Kitzrow. Love Tim. He's still doing voices to this day, like in the new Elvira pen. Yeah, which I think he just, he killed it. Killed it. This is an unusual game because in the middle, it's got like these these stand-up targets and a crane mech. And again, that appearance of that Barry Ausler left looping kind of ramp with diverter on it. Something, of course, we would see often. The super engineer, Zofia Ryan, was uh, moved from this game and she didn't get to finish junkyard but she did do a couple of other mechanical bits on there one of them is the doghouse plunge so instead of just having a regular plunge you plunge the ball into a doghouse and the dog itself moves here's some trivia this is the first pin with a toilet on the play field so with an actual toilet as opposed to not one like you can use like a to- like a no like no like no a i mean like Lethal Weapon 3 has a toilet on the playfield. It, it literally has a mode called toilet. This one, you shoot the ball into the okay, toilet. Okay, so first with a physical toilet. Yeah, not a, yeah, physical toilet. Yeah. Not, a, not, a, not a picture of a toilet. Like, this is proper toilet here. Proper toilet. Yeah, this is one level from real toilet. I can't think of anything earlier that had a toilet. Mm. And it's got a crane mech. And we know pinball and cranes go together. Just like, they just go together. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like uh, peanut butter and chocolate. Okay, I'll give you that. Yeah, I mean, there's so many games with cranes in them. This is a cool uh, crane mech. Um, it's it, you know it's no Batman '66, but we're also talking like 25, 30 years ago. Well, yeah. Barry Ausler would say about the crane that originally he had a steel cable on that design. After a short time, the cable would fray and it would eventually break. It was changed to a chain, and the mechanical arm would move up and down. The original had a pulley with a ball on a cable. Also, the original game had a magnet underneath the crane ball to sort of be able to uh, catch a ball and move that crane magnet, uh, move that crane ball around. In fact, some of the prototypes actually have that mech in them. So Barry would also tell IPDB that the magnet under the playfield was there to stop the ball from swinging when the cable was there so that you could set up the ball for another shot. I guess it doesn't swing as much with the chain, so the magnet was removed. It is actually the theme, is it not? Like, it looks like a friggin' junkyard. Like, stuff is all over the place. It's not very cohesive. And the DMD stuff is cool because there's just callbacks to so many games. It, the, the art's a bit of a mess. Like, it, I mean, it's, its theme is perfect. I don't particularly like the look of it, but it is what it is. And the devil's in it for some reason. Why, why, why not? Oh, well, 
Just saying. He's, he's, he's an actual character in the game. At this time, Williams was really in cut mode. So this is like that 95, 96, 97 era where, you know, the hammer was starting to drop at Williams. Many people were being cut from the company or moved into different departments. And that must have been a very difficult environment. Sophia Ryan would say, I did some of the wireframes and the dog that pops up. I was proud of the design. The crane was not finished because I was moved to gaming. I was no longer on any pinball projects. So I started the game, but then worked with Brent Cornell on finishing the game. So you can see that people were being cut, moved around. I think you can see that in this game, that some of the the cohesive nature that Barry Ouser would usually build around his games is, is kind of lost a little bit on Junkyard. John Trudeau would say, you come in your office one day and your pass won't work. It was that cold. The pass should have been green, but it came up red. I thought somebody screwed up and, and someone came out to the door and let me in. I went to my room and Larry DeMar said, uh, we got to talk. That was it. Me, Barry Ausler, and Dennis Nordman gone. Yeah, so he's he's working in the middle of this project, Barry Ausler. And then one day, he just three of the, the sort of designers there are gone. You know, why is that shocking to me? Uh, one of them is Dennis Nordman came in sort of in that Bally Midway acquisition. John Trudeau had left Gottlieb and came in sort of, you know, 92. Barry Ausler was an institution. He was there at the beginning of Solid State. He was there working on the EMs at Williams. Like, he was the heart and soul of Williams, and he's just sort of lumped up. It in, was in interesting court. that they did that, because when, when Stern did all their layoffs in 2008, I mean, who they kept, they had Borg, you know, who had been at Data East. They kept Lyman Sheets, Data East, and they kept Lonnie, Rob, Data East. Like, they kept all their people, anyone who'd been... The people have been at Williams before all got canned. Yeah, that's that's something else. Uh, Zofia Ryan says, So what happened with the pinball division, there was a huge layoff, and I think only a few people were left. I think two teams were left, but for my team, Barry and the programmers and others, they all had to leave. You know, that's a big hit where, um, you know, you've put you've literally built a company, right? Like you were there during that massive ramp up in the 80s. You were the person that carried Williams during the darkest times, then you're there building some of the most amazing mechanical masterpieces, maybe not the best licenses, but definitely the greatest games. And then you're just out. That's rough. So why didn't Barry work for Stern? You know, around this time, right, when we're in the downturn of pinball, um, especially sort of that Sega to Stern transition, Stern didn't really want you know, full-time overhead with designers. They more or less wanted to work under contract. So you'd build a design and they would just pay you for the design under contract and they would take care of the rest. Steve Ritchie and Pat Lawler worked under sort of that um, early 2000 structure at, uh, at Stern. Yep, they all had their own company. It was Steve Ritchie Productions and Pat Lawler's was uh, just PLD, Pat Lawler Design. So Barry Ausler would say, if Pat Lawler and Steve Ritchie didn't design a game or they didn't make a game, they don't get any money. I don't know what they did in between. So, of course, Barry is looking for stability. And if you're doing sort of freelance contract pinball design for Stern, who is literally the only survivor after 2000, that's a, you know, that's tough. So what did he do for 20 plus years, Ron? Well, he went to work for uh, Benson. Benson is a distributor. 
one of the biggest ones in the country. I think still he was a purchasing manager. So, you know, sadly, Barry was laid off and he began to work for a company called EcoSure, which is a division of Ecolab, a worldwide company. They're mostly involved in food safety, um, sort of like the safety food health department. And of course, he did mostly administrative work there, which is mind blowing that somebody who spent their whole life doing engineering stuff would end up administration. But that's how it goes sometimes. When you need health insurance and you need, you know, a, a steady paycheck, you do what you got to do. In 2013, Barry's wife, Donna, fell ill with kidney failure. And in 2014, Barry developed bone marrow cancer. And of course, uh, we don't have this in Canada, but in the United States, sometimes uh, you don't have medical coverage. And Barry and Donna found it very difficult paying their medical bills. So they reached out to the pinball community who raised $33,000 for the Ouslers on GoFundMe. Yeah, we actually had a benefit tournament in Rochester during that time. For, for a Canadian, it's really difficult for me to comprehend that, but I am so glad that the community as a whole was able to sort of stand up and help somebody like the Ouslers. Sadly, though, in August of 2015, Donna did pass away. Both her and Barry were married for 41 years. I'm moving into my eighth year of marriage, and sometimes it feels like 41. Barry would say, I want to tell everyone who helped in the past and who are helping now, thank you. Every one of you has touched our lives in some way. We really appreciate all the help we have been given by our family, friends, and the pinball community. I'm really going to miss my best friend and the love of my life. We forget about the people sometimes in pinball. We spend a lot of time on forums, uh, on podcasts, yakking amongst friends and, and being mad and upset about designs and why doesn't baby Yoda move and all of that stuff. But we forget that there's people behind that. And I hope podcasts like this can help really bring out the individuals that are there. What's Barry doing now? He eventually, he was at highway pinball briefly and designed what was supposed to be queen, mm. which highway went under. So that never came out. Uh, but the, the design is still out there. Highway was eventually, the assets were purchased by Pinball Brothers. Deeper Pinball, when they started up, they attempted to buy, they wanted that design. They wanted the Queen design, and Pinball Brothers wouldn't sell it to them. So maybe there will be a Barry Ausler Queen game at some point in the future. You never know. Barry Ausler is currently a designer at Deep Root Pinball in Texas. And of course, he is designing pinball machines again. Barry has come back to the community and come back to the family, which I think everybody is excited about. And my only hope is that Deep Root gets everything together and actually releases some of these pins. Now, This Week in Pinball, a sponsor of the show, actually did a deep dive back in 2020 with the launch of Raza and the beginning of that whole level of shenanigans and they released some of the game titles in which Barry is working on. Well, what's, uh, what's Raza stand for? Oh, I'm sorry. Retro Atomic Zombie Adventure Land. We get in our acronym sometimes and forget that person. Like, Raza, that's a weird title. Is that some kind of, like, android creature? That's a, the whole Deep Root thing is a whole thing. We'll save that for its own episode when I'll hopefully have something to talk about. 
But uh, Barry Ausler is apparently working on a game called Food Truck, The Who, based on the band, a gladiator pin, and a to-be-named Black Hole Revisited machine, which has one of the craziest mechs pinball has ever seen. So we look forward to that. As the only person that I know in the pinball industry, Barry Ausler is also one of those people that came down with COVID-19 in 2020, but he did recover after a brief hospitalization. So Barry, keep it up. We want to see some designs. Now, Ron, we're coming to the end of the episode. Barry has left and he hasn't designed a production game really since Junkyard. He is one of the highest selling pinball designers of all time. He's somebody who doesn't just design a play field, but he designs a unique, mechanically engineered, wonderful world under glass. His designs are unique, and they have given thousands of people a lot of fun throughout his career. Do you have anything you would like to add about Barry Osler in our Barry Osler Saves Pinball episode? It just seems weird a guy that would have that much success that no one has a bad thing to say about. It's gone so long without a game, especially in this current market. You think like Jersey Jack couldn't have hired him or, but I mean, well, he tried it highway and that, that just didn't work out. I think it probably comes down to just, just manufacturing in general, right? Like, and the thing we didn't mention is he, he is a native Chicagoan. We probably mentioned that in the first episode, but he, he moved to Texas to go to deep root. God, I just, the Texas barbecue would be reason to go alone. Oh, I, I don't really eat barbecue. Oh my God. You don't watch movies. You don't eat barbecue. You I'm don't drink coffee. Sorry. Barbecue is like, eh, not my, not my thing. Coffee makes me ill. I do watch movies. I watched movies at a point in my life. I just don't watch many movies anymore. Sue me. I watched Mandalorian. Hey, I know what that is. Give me some credit. Oh, you didn't just watch the last part of it when somebody shows up with a lightsaber? Uh, no. Well, actually, yeah, I did. Just because I didn't get to season two yet, and I couldn't escape that clip. Sorry. Thanks for joining me again, Ron, this month. Hopefully, we will jump back in next month with another fascinating, amazing topic. Ah, any, any clues? No. No. Zero clues. I'm as clueless as, as you listeners are. I have no idea what we're doing. Or or he'll give me, or you'll give me like one of three different things. It's like, okay, which one? Don't know. So I've got a bunch of uh, mostly completed show notes for a couple of things. They're all of, unfortunately, heavily weighted in the Bally Williams era. And I want to try to find maybe something else to mix that up, but okay. we might end up being somewhere in the 90s for a few episodes. Colleague System 80. And as always, you can send your comments, questions, corrections, and concerns to sealablechronicles at gmail.com. We look forward to all your messages and we read every one. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. Your favorite still spelled wrong, just to let you know. Turn on automatic downloads so you don't miss a single episode. Remember to leave us a five-star review wherever you found us or on This Week in Pinball Promoter Database. That way more people can find us. Want to support the podcast and need a new shirt? Swing on over to SilverballSwag.com and pick up a Silverball Chronicles t-shirt to help us keep the lights on.
about you? Oh, no, sorry. Nope. That's a no. No? No. This, we're done. That's it. I quit. Yeah, I think I'm going to hit golf balls or something. <gasps> that sounds like fun. That sounds like fun. I'm going to go to Home Depot and probably get paint for my deck. That doesn't sound like fun. And no, this is, this is what you do when you're married. Mm-hmm. You go to Home Depot and Costco. So Joe says, Williams needed a game that sold at least 3,500. Eh, it doesn't sound as good when I say that. Williams needed a game that sold at least 3,500 machines to get. Th- it actually doesn't sound good either. <laughs> I'll say 3,500. All right. Hold on. Give me, give me one second. Mm-hmm. Ooh, squeaky door. Supposed to be the new spooky horror theme. So fancy. So you guys are out and about without masks now, eh? Uh, we're out and about. Yes, without masks. Oh, I love when I go open the browser and it updates itself. <sighs> Say hello to a new Firefox. It looks the same as the old Firefox. We still use that? What are you? What is this, 2001? Well, I still use Firefox. Well, I just I went through your notes trying to de candidify it <laughs> it's like paycheck you know spelling it correctly yeah did you like that that's a good one yeah that one really throws people for a loop yeah it's like two words instead of one word check with a q there's no there's no there's no q oh uh, not just a q u e no 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 no